Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Radio Imbibe from Imbibe Magazine. I'm Paul Clark, the executive editor of Imbibe. This is episode number six of our podcast, and we've got something different for you today, because today we're taking a deep dive into cocktail history with one of the pioneers of the cocktail renaissance, legendary bartender and author Dale DeGroff. Back in 2002, Dale published his first book, The Craft of the Cocktail, and there's no way to overstate the significance of that work at the time. For professional bartenders and for home bartenders, the craft of the cocktail revealed this whole world of culinary cocktails at a time when everyone was increasingly looking for expert guidance on the craft. Now, this fall, a revised and updated edition of The Craft of the Cocktail has just been released, featuring some fresh approaches to these recipes from Dale based on things he's learned and been exposed to in the years since the book was first released. And Dale shares recipes and insights from some of the other formative figures in the ongoing cocktail renaissance, demonstrating how the cocktail world he first introduced so many of us to back in 2002 has grown and evolved over the years. We're spending this entire episode with Dale DeGroff, starting with early experiences behind the bar in New York and LA, and looking at the time right around when the craft of the cocktail was first published, as well as the years since then and this world that has developed. Dale, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure, Paul. I'm really looking forward to it. You've got the new revised edition of The Craft of the Cocktail launching this fall. Before we talk about the revised version, let's talk about the original and the bar world and the cocktail world in which that original version developed. Take us back, please, to your first introduction into the bar world and the path and the people that eventually led you to the Rainbow Room and the need for a book like The Craft of the Cocktail. I will. Uh, so I, I came to New York in, in the late 60s. Uh, 69. And uh, I stayed for a while. Then I went back at one point a year later to get married. And then I came back. But um, it, it was 30 seconds before I realized, of course, that it, everything happens in the bars in New York City. And no matter what neighborhood you were in, you gravitated toward the bars. No matter what you were doing, you gravitated toward the bars. I lived in the YMCA on 34th Street. I was trying to be an actor. Uh, I had gone to university and, and our play was well received at the Yale Drama Festival by the New Yorker critic of all people, Brendan Gill. And I thought, well, that's it. I'm out of here, baby. <laughs> I'll be on Broadway, on a Broadway stage in no time, you know, and I, I was exactly right. At no time to this day have I ever been on a Broadway stage. <laughs> but anyway, it was a, an extraordinarily awe-inspiring, not that I hadn't been to New York before, but every time I went to New York to hang out with my friend and his fancy advertising owning uh, agency brother who took us out on all kinds of wonderful jaunts. Every time I, I came, I always had a ticket back in my, in my pocket. But this time I'm in the YMCA. I have no return ticket. I have limited funds. And suddenly it hit me as I looked at these massive skyscrapers and everything. And I just was terrified. And at the same time, absolutely wondering what the hell was going on behind all these windows, you know, and I couldn't wait to find out. So that was my introduction and my arrival. Uh, I, I took a bunch of crazy jobs. I worked for uh, the Gideon Company, packing Bibles into boxes, believe it or not. And I worked uh, as a dishwasher at the original Howard Johnson's in Times Square, their flagship, you name it. I, and then I worked at an ad agency and that changed my life because uh, it was called Lois, Holland and Calloway. It was small, but very creative. George Lois was a legendary art director and Ron Holland was the protege of a legendary, they called him the, the Shakespeare of the 32nd spot. And his name was uh, Julian Koenig. And, and, and uh, Ron learned his, his, his skills from Julian. Julian had done Alka-Seltzer and Brill Cream and oh my God, all the big ones, you know. And uh, it, it was an extraordinary place to be. I was in the mail room. <laughs> you know, my best friend's older brother owned the place and he gave us jobs. That was a basic shot. But because they had restaurant associates as an account, that was stunning. The best restaurants in the world at the time, certainly the most expensive, the Forum of the Twelve Caesars with gold plate instead of silver plate. It was astonishing. Anyway, Ron took us out. You know, he, he got dinners for free and, and, and bars, and he was a pretty good drinker, but he understood drinking and he understood how to act in bars, what to order, when and why. And I really paid attention. You know, we went out a lot. And then uh, and that and through Joe and through his account at called Restaurant Associates, at which time the president was Joe Baum. I got to meet Joe in those early days, not really meet him, but be at table with him. You know, for example, when the when one of his Joe's failures called Spatz on 33 West 33rd Street, is that not a great address? 33 West 33rd Street. Spatz was right across from Gleason's gym. And Gleason's gym was like the 
gym for boxing. Madison Square Garden was a block away. It was the place to train. And Joe thought that, you know, well-heeled folks would love to sort of uh, step out and, and maybe slumming. Yes. But what happened was, of course, it was a little too soon. It was a little too slummy. But I sat at a table with him and, and 12 other people. And we all had every dish on the menu on the table in front of us. So we got to taste it quite marvelous. And I, I had a few other episodes like that when I was at the agency and then didn't really meet him again until I came back from Los Angeles in 1984. But in the meantime, uh, I worked as a waiter. I worked as a service bartender. My first job as a bartender, by the way, was at Gracie Mansion, only because the restaurant in Charlie, Charlie O's and Rockefeller Center had the account to do all the parties up there. And none of the regular Irish bartenders had any interest in a gig where you had to load a truck, unload it loaded again and unloaded again, <laughs> you know, and they were all union guys. And so they were desperate to get people to work these parties. And I was a waiter there. So they said, we need a bartender. And I just lied. And I ran up to the bar and, and asked Michael, one of the Irish fellows, to give me a 10 popular drinks on an index card. And he says, Dale, don't worry about it. You won't have to do that. It's going to be scotch on the rocks, vodka on the rocks, tab, Perrier. Dale, don't worry about it. I said, please, Michael. All right, I will. And he put down the recipes. And of course, just as he said, not a single thing was ordered except those things. But it was the day that the, that Mayor Bean gave the keys of the city to Rupert Murdoch because he had just bought the post. And here I am behind the bar and feeling real good about it and seeing a room full of celebrity type folks. And I kind of got used to that, you know. And later on, Mike offered me the uh, the service bartending job. And that, got, that meant I got to work the main bar on Saturday and Sunday if I wanted that shift. And I did. And that was my first real, real in front of guests bartending. And I had, and then I worked at these weird singles places, uh, Sweet Dams. Jimmy Sweet Dam was an advertising guy, kind of a miserable guy. And I worked at a place called Hobo's, H-O-B-E-A-U-X. That'll give you an idea what it was kind of like, you know. <laughs> the friendship got in the name, the jumpier the joint. <laughs> yeah. But it was, a, it was a tough job. It was, you know four in the morning closing after two in the morning, there's just me in a, in a bar back, you know, and I had to cook steaks and hamburgers and run the bar. And it was very, very tough, but I made all the money. And it, it was just, you know, typical singles stuff. And then I, and then I went to LA and that was 1978. I went to LA and I have been so lucky, Paul, in my career. I, I walked into a job at the hotel, at the Bel Air Hotel. Somebody said that they had fired the day man at the famous Bel Air Hotel. And well, I think it's probably one of the top 10 exclusive hotels in the world at the time. It was it was out in the middle of Bel Air, hard to find. I just walked into the bar and big red-faced Irishman, Jim Kitchens. I could tell he was about to tell me, you know, just to drop a resume or go to the office and see the manager. But I could also tell that he didn't belong there. He looked like a substitute teacher because he didn't belong there. He was the executive bartender and he had fired the day guy. So where was he behind the day bar? <laughs> Miserable as can be. And so he called me behind the bar and he says, where'd you work? I said, Charlie O's in New York City. He'd heard of it. It was a Joe Bond place, you know, Charlie O's. Yeah. Pour me a shot. You know, I poured him a shot. Um, make me a sidecar. They had, you know, Sour mix out of the gun, even at the Bel Air Hotel. That's the way life was in the 70s. And I made him a sidecar. And he said, okay, come back tomorrow and we'll give you a couple of days. Try out black pants, white shirt. We'll supply the jacket, tie. I said, okay. And that was the beginning. But I also lucked in moonlighting at, at other great places like the, the Larson Brothers, who owned the Magic Castle, had a show business club downtown called the Variety Arts Club. I worked there at the W.C. Fields Bar, one of the great jobs ever. Uh, just just lucky stuff, serendipitous, being at the right time at the right time. I worked a wonderful Spanish place on Santa Monica Boulevard right next to the famous rock and roll club on Troubadour. So I got to know those bartenders and sneak into all manner of shows and see it from the booth, you know. <laughs> so it was. I love my L.A. years, and mostly I love them because I met my wife, Jill, from New York. LA and both of my sons, Leo and Blake, were born in Hollywood Presbyterian. Before we pulled up stakes and headed back to New York, I was not going to head back. I was going to go to Berkeley, California and be a partner in a place called Bucci's, which just closed after 29 years of operation. And I, uh, I, I couldn't get a job while we were opening the restaurant in that had health insurance. So I apologized to my future partners. And I got a call from New York from a friend that said, Joe Bond was hiring for a head bartender at a place called Aurora on the east side of Manhattan. And I was off like a shot to go to the interview. And uh, 
I got the gig, you know, with Joe at Aurora in 1984, quite extraordinary place. And that uh, brings me up to the Rain Broom days. I didn't really know anything about the Rain Broom when I first went to work for Joe at Aurora. It was only after watching the banquets right across from this beautiful horseshoe-shaped granite bar. It was a beautiful place. It was designed by Milton Glaser. It was stunning. And Joe did a massively beautiful job on that, on this bar and uh, in the whole place. It was fine dining, you know. And Joe was at this big banquet, right, literally, or two of them right across from the bar here. And, and he's with, you know, Milton Glaser. He's with Phil George, the designer. And, and he's with lots of restaurateurs. He's with the guy who owned the Gloucester House coming all the time, hang out with him and talk to him. And uh, Dale Chilhuli, the guy, you know, the, the glass guy. And, I, and then one day, Benny Goodman sits at the bar and says, I'm here to meet Joe Mom. That did it. I went to Raymond Wellington, wine master, wonderful guy. He was one of the seller at Windows on the World under Kevin. I said, what the hell is going on? I got Benny Goodman at my bar. He said, it's a rainbow room thing. I said, what? The rainbow room thing, man. Where have you been? Joe's been working on it for a year. There, He's opening that famous rainbow room on top of Rockefeller Center. I said, oh, then I got it. Why Joe asked me to make this 19th century cocktail menu, just like they used to do it in the golden age, you know, and get this book by Jerry Thomas, which drove me crazy because I didn't know it was published in 1862. And after I had done all that, I, I really could it was a fine dining French restaurant for crying out loud with a two-star Michelin chef named Gerard Pango with a big copper bucket full of champagne on the front. And, you know, I sold a few drinks because they were good, you know, and I had the Ritz cocktail, which I designed for the place with a champagne drink. But then I got it. Joe was doing Dishes with Tradition and Tricks with Traditions, 1930s Supper Club on top of Rockefeller Center. And as soon as I heard the news, man, I was all over it. I went to Joe and said, Joe, I got an idea for your job over there, your, your, your project at, at Rockefeller Center. Well, what is that? I said, I thought we could do a menu. Say, of all drinks coming off of some of the great supper clubs and bars that are in the shadow of the RCA building. It was a GE building then, but it was, you know, like the, like the store club and, and the colony on Fifth Avenue and the Copa. And they said, yeah, I've done it. Show me a menu. So I worked on a menu for a long time. I got help from his partner, Michael Whiteman, from Michael's wife, Roseanne. They were my tasters. Michael found me old books. He found me the one book that was invaluable, Bottoms Up, that wonderful snapshot of every fine dining and great bar in 1951 around the world and what they were pouring. It was so useful. And uh, I presented Joe with a menu that he liked. And uh, he wouldn't hire me at that moment because Alan Lewis a colleague of his for over 40 years was going to be the manager. And I had to meet Alan first. And I went down and met Alan. And it was a funny story. It was right across from the Flatiron building. The Joe Bond Michael Whiteman company had offices down there. Anyway, uh, Alan, quite the crusty character with his feet up on the desk and his cardamom sweater. What do you need to live on, kid? Before I even sat down, he asks me. Yeah, what's a figure? I, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I threw a figure out. And of course, the second I threw it out, I'm like, Idiot, you idiot. I, I didn't hear anything he said. I, I I was on the street the next thing I knew, and I said, this is way too important. I called immediately back, and I and I asked the secretary to put me through to Mr. Lewis, and I said, Mr. Lewis, it's Dale again. He said, yeah, what do you want? I said, you know, you, you caught me by surprise when you asked for a figure. Figure? Well, you're going to make three times that. Click. <laughs> Where are those bosses today? <laughs> and like you said, you know, Joe had pushed you in the direction and, and you had proposed this direction of kind of going back to the core elements and going back to the core recipes, the classic cocktails, the old masters in a way. How did you wind up putting that original menu together at the Rainbow Room? And how did that kind of translate into what became the craft of the cocktail leading you on this path in that direction? <laughs> okay. Well, Joe wanted, he didn't want original drinks, by the way. That was not the idea. He wasn't interested at all in my creativity. He was interested in recreating what had happened so many years ago and hadn't happened in many, many years. Really, really, Prohibition did such a job on, a, on, on the profession in terms of anyone who wanted to actually be a bartender or, or the ingredients that were necessary to make the great classics of the 19th century, there was only 1,500 spirits left around after Prohibition. We have 6,500 gins today, you know, worldwide. And there, there was 1,500 spirits in the United States post-Prohibition. 
so it was a really difficult era for so many reasons. Gangsters had run everything and they didn't get out of the business. They just went legit. So it was still a gangster profession in terms of distribution. Even clubs and things were still owned by these guys. It was uh, nowhere any young person wanted to find their career. So who did, who did those jobs? You know, people who were, you know, either involved with the gangsters or people who were, you know, could get into college and, you know, had to have a job or whatever. And I'm, I'm not saying every bar was a gangster. Of course not. There were neighborhood bars, all kinds of bars, but it was an unsavory profession in the eyes of most people and it wasn't sought after. And, and Joe wanted to recreate what had happened before Prohibition and, and immediately after Prohibition in all the really fancy places where there were good bartenders brought back from Europe, maybe like like Ferdinand Pitpidio, who had been over at Harry's Bar uh, in Paris and Actually, he, he hadn't worked in the United States, but they brought him over here to work. But, you know, they brought back some, found some serious talent. And, and But other than that, there was no school for this. So on the, on the normal run-of-the-mill bars, these guys are flying blind. They got a few books to deal with, you know, but a lot of the ingredients are missing and they can't even make the drinks anymore. Nobody knows how to do the balancing of fresh juices and balancing ingredients like bitters and citrus and all that other stuff. It just, there's nobody teaching that. And so things just unravel. You know, and by the time, you know, the 50s roll around, like everything else, even in the culinary world after two world wars and everything, I mean, we had fallen in love with processed and canned foods and the, and the whole convenience of the whole culinary thing. I mean, we had lost our way completely, you know, in the 20, mid 20th century in, in all culinary things and all beverage things in terms of being fine dine. So Joe Baum was the only one who was looking forward back in 1953 when he took the job as new development manager at this funny little company called Restaurant Associates. Well, it wasn't so little. The Wexler family ended up owning it, and they wanted Joe to put something together and make something out of it. And that, he did so well in the beginning that he became the president of the company by, by 1959 when he opened the Four Seasons in the Seagram building, La Fonda del Sol in, in the Time Life building, two brand new buildings, two brand new concepts that were, you know, thinking of, you know, Four Seasons tells the whole story right there, you know, fresh, seasonal, and, and La Fonda was a, was a celebration of all of the Americas, South America, Central America, Mexico, even the Caribbean. Uh, it was No one was doing anything like that. And Joe was such a detailed guy. He sent people to South America. He got the recipes. Do you know that in, in 59, 60, he actually opened La Fonda del Sol. He had on his menu mezcal drinks, tequila drinks, pisco drinks, and he had to import those spirits for that restaurant because they just simply weren't in the United States. Uh, tequila had made it to the Chicago market. During during prohibition, it was called uh, Mexican brandy because they need they would drink anything. You know what I mean? It was prohibition. Anything that had alcohol in it, they were interested in. They could get it cheap. Uh, so it was an extraordinary thing. And Joe was so far out front of the group, if you will. And uh, I, I believe he was a he was a, a genius, biggest genius probably. And, and and Michael Whiteman mentioned this to me when I interviewed him for my my book. He said, you know, Dale, what he was able to do was assemble a team of people that had and shared his vision, uh, James Beard, because when, when he brought James Beard on, it was because James Beard saw the, the need for a new American cuisine. It was They were both fed up with the idea that Italian restaurants and French restaurants were the only starred restaurants in America, you know, it's certainly in New York City. And they wanted to change that. And so he worked closely with, with Beard on, on all those menus that we just talked about and many, many more, right up to Windows on the World until until he died in the 80s, the mid-80s, 87, I guess it was James time. So so that that concept, you know, he, he changed in, in, his, in those two restaurants, actually. He got us on a path that really brought us to where we are today on the culinary side of the business. And as far as I'm concerned, Paul, if it hadn't have been for 35 years of extraordinary growth, uh, revolution on the culinary side of the business, we would not have had the audience that bought into this whole thing that's happened since the new millennium with these young guys putting things in that glass that have never been there before, using techniques that were never got out of the kitchen, in some cases out of the laboratory. <laughs> you know, it's extraordinary what where we have come. And to get to the book, I, I started writing a book at Rainbow, like in the mid-90s, because I had some customers from Dell. I don't know who owned Dell at the time, some big corporation. And they were just drinking, and they saw what I was doing. They said, this is so fascinating. I love this menu. Nobody's doing anything like this anywhere else. And I, you know, you got to write a book. And I'm going, you think so? Wow, maybe you're right. I said, I got all the recipes. I've been working on that for two years, you know, and I... 
maybe you're right. Maybe we should write the rainbow recipe book. You know, so I'm starting. I'm starting to put everything down on paper and giving them some, you know, the the recipe chapter and talking. And then, <laughs> of course, Joe knows everybody, including the CEO of Dell, who calls up Joe and says, "Hey, Joe, you know, there's a guy behind your bar who's writing a book about the rainbow room cocktails. Do you know anything about that?" Then I get a call from the executive floor at 43. <laughs> get. There. I get in front of Joe and just is fit to be tied. And he says, what the hell think you're doing? We don't even own the name Rainbow, number one. It's owned by Rockefeller Center. Number two, if anybody's going to write anything about this place, it's going to be me. Get the hell out of my office. You know, and I, I, I didn't even think of any of this. I was like a babe in the woods, you know. And uh, that was corporate stuff. I had no friggin' idea. So that was the end of that. And and when you were talking about the menu at the Rainbow Room that you did when you first opened and also that these guys from Dell first noticed, give us some examples of some of the things that you had on there that were going back in time in a way. The Ramos Fizz, the Sazerac, Between the Sheets, the the uh, Clover Club, the Floridora, the Flor- after the Floridora Girls, the, the Manhattan, the Martini. I, I wanted, obviously, the two most iconic cocktails on there. You know, now we don't even put them on anymore because they're so iconic. I had 26 of them, and then I had champagne cocktails. I had my own that I had created over at Aurora, but I also had the champagne cocktail. I had the Bellini. We had uh, non-alcoholic cocktails, which was was my idea, but Joe was not really happy about it. But I felt if we're going to be such a destination, there's going to be a lot of people that don't drink, you know, coming up here to celebrate stuff. So I put together fancy non-alcoholic and expensive. I made them, you know, not too much underneath the alcoholic drinks to make Joe happy. They went in fancy, beautiful glassware, just like all the other drinks did. And we're talking about the time leading up to the original edition of the craft of the cocktail in 2002 and the role of the classic cocktails and formulations in your approach. You're going to demonstrate one of those classics for us that you came across during that time. And later in this same episode, we'll revisit this thread to see something a bit more contemporary. So show us what you've got. Um, I'm going to do a stir cocktail, so I'm going to have to uh, assemble some uh, ice here in my something we never had back in those days, the martini beaker. You know, I mean, they were around in private in, in home cocktail parties, but you never saw one behind the bar. You know, <laughs> just didn't happen. Uh, so I get some ice in here. I got the big cold draft cube, which was, by the way, Joe Baum introduced me to cold draft. I later went to work for the company promoting cold draft ice ice cubes. And, uh, but it, it was Joe's idea to to go with the cold draft. They were the at that time that was what was happening. So this is the 1888 martini, and it's really right out of Harry Johnson's book. So it's not going to be anything. The next drink is going to be one that I spun off. Uh, because in in the book, the evolution of the martini talks about the martini really going all the way back to the fancy gin cocktail. Because really, in a sense, the architecture of that drink in Harry Johnson, Harry, uh, I mean, uh, Jerry Thomas's book, really was the same kind of architecture. It was mostly gin, and that would have been Geneva, but dashes and splashes of, of other stuff. You know, so it had that kind of uh, idea. Uh, that the martini became. And actually, it was even closer to the modern martini than this drink in 1888 because it had mostly gin. (laughs) This was the beginning of the 50-50. And this would predominate the martini all through the 80s into the 90s, into the the aughts, right until Prohibition. 50-50 was the cocktail of the the era. And in many cases, they, they retained all those five ingredients because they a lot of those bartenders like uh the most important bartenders of the of the era charles mahoney being right at that top of that list uh who drained so many of the great bartenders including harry craddock who went off to to london uh he would not use the name martini on anything except harry johnson's recipe all those other dry vermouth and dry gin drinks and there were five of them in his book were called either the Mahoney cocktail or after two customers were they were they were named after, so it, it, I mean this evolution was happening, but those great bartenders were loath to step on the master, you know, the master's recipe. <laughs> you know, it's like in the '90s when we we were so angry at, at all the you know chocolatinis and the mango teenies, you know, everybody's like it's not a martini, you know, <laughs> but at least they had the. The good sense that I call it a martini without it without a some kind of a modifier. So here I'm going to go, and and by the way, I'll put the dashes and slashes as he did. I'm using Bogarts because the 
bit of truth guys have decided to go with the with a misprint. <laughs> it's actually supposed to be Boker's as it appears in 1888. It appears as Boker's. And he calls for two or three dashes. He also calls for two or three dashes of gum. So, you know, we're getting sweetness in here. And then he does, he just wants one dash of, of curacao. I'm going to use the dry curacao that uh, Pierre Ferrand and David Wondrich worked on because it probably a recipe that was similar to uh, what was happening in, in the 19th century. And it's, it's uh, Pierre Ferrand's dry curacao. A nice product. Um, and then we're going to move on to the larger ingredients, uh, the half ounces. I mean, the ounces, because it calls for a half a wine glass. And of course, a wine glass was an ounce back in those days. And I'm going to use Old Tom. I like Ransom, Old Tom. And I'm going to use an ounce of that. I'm going to use an ounce of, you know, he called for vermouth, but in, in Harry Johnson's book, and he, he has a list of every ingredient at his bar. You could open a bar from Harry Johnson's book because the opening was all about opening a bar. And in that list, it says vermouth, no modifier. It doesn't say Italian, it doesn't say French. So it had to be Italian because the Italian was the one that made it to the Northeast. The French, although it came to the port of New Orleans in 1851, Noily Pratt, it was drunk in the French Quarter as wine, and it was sent off to the gold fields of California because there was a bunch of expat Frenchmen out there who saw that it was being, because the last stop was New Orleans, and they saw people drinking this French vermouth, and they said, oh, yeah, send that along out to us, too. So the next, the next stop for Northern Pratt was San Francisco, you know, <laughs> isn't that amazing? And uh, I, actually, this drink is probably good if you were to mix sweet and dry, but I'm going classic sweet alone. And then we're going to stir. It's a stirred drink. I got my fancy new bar spoon. All these things that didn't exist when I started attending bar. These beautiful Japanese and German bar spoons and these beakers and these stunning uh, strainers from all over the world. This is the OXO, which is, you know, really lovely in terms of ergonomics and easy to handle. I'm using Tony Abogannon's Modern Mixology Jigger, another easy to handle. Now, I'm going to be using the classic uh, 19th century coupe glass. It had the little gems in the stem and it was quite beautiful those glasses uh it was a decent drink you know and i'm going to finish it off with a uh with a lemon peel here and there you have it the uh 1888 martini by harry johnson and i i wanted to tell you one more thing about the book and that is that i really kind of had gotten off the idea of writing a book and when i when we lost the rainbow room in 1999 actually New Year's Eve 19, into 1999. Our last New Year's Eve was 1997 into 98, 99, 98 into 99. We didn't even have a New Year's Eve. We had to return the money that we had taken. We had a bad negotiation with Jerry Spire of Rockefeller Center, and we, we lost the place. And it really, at that point, Arthur Emil had retired, and his son David was doing the negotiating, and he wasn't up for the job. And, and I'm sure that Jerry Spire wished he hadn't lost it because the, the new tenants did not do well and they were eventually uh, they were eventually evicted and they made a mess of the property to the tune of eight million dollars for repairs so uh we lost it and david emile asked me they still owned the old aurora lease it had become an italian restaurant for a while and they were getting it back because the italian restaurant was gone and did i want to go in as sort of a partner you know they were giving me a contract guaranteed money and all that stuff and do a do a basically a turnkey bar you know and i said on one condition we open at four we close at four in the morning no fancy food we have you know bar food i got a going a baby grand piano and i want to do jazz i have a guy who's so good he had been playing near rainbow rim in a in a uh, assembly steakhouse on that on 51st street i want to hire him and they agreed to all that uh, but then a month before opening david comes to me and his dad wanted to have a lunch and that killed everything, killed our business plan, because then we needed a, we needed a fancy chef. His dad wants a lunch place. Now we got to have gourmet food. So we hired a $75,000 chef and seven waiters and, you know, instead of cocktail waitresses. And the whole thing went out the window in 10 months because you know, we didn't plan for that. And we hadn't put any money into the physical plan. It was a turnkey. And it was kind of messy in there. So uh, I call it a pop-up. But so many good things happened. I hired Audrey Saunders there. She worked for me for the first time, even though she had worked for me on pro bono events prior to that. This was the first time I got to work behind the bar with her. It was a great creative time for both of us. Uh, I, I had the opportunity to do many things I couldn't do at Rainbow, and that is create drinks, <laughs> you know, on a much larger scale than I had ever been doing before. So I was doing cherry caipirinha, 
and uh, sweet cherry caipirinhas and all these wonderful things. But anyway, what happened was an agent, a book agent named John Hodgman was my one of my regulars. He said, you got to make a book out of this. You know, you got to do a book. You did things at the Rainbow Room. You're doing things here. You, you, you need to get all this in a book. I said, yeah, I tried that. You know, I just, uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't really want to go dashing around to offices all over midday. He says, no, no. I said, why can't, you know, I said, you know, if I could tell stories here at the bar, he said, and then we lost the bar, the bar closed. So I went to a the former chef at the Rainbow Room uh, had opened up a, a grill restaurant on 56th Street. It was fantastic. It was really a wonderful place. And I asked him if I could borrow his bar between three and four when there was nobody in the place, you know. And uh, Audrey Saunders had gone to work for him over there after she left my bar. And so there was a connection. And I also knew the chef really, really well, obviously. And I uh, had groups of people that were brought in by and, and the agency was called Writer's House. It was a pretty good agency. And he brought in these groups of people because as soon as they find out they're going to get free drinks, it wasn't just one editor. It was like five, right? So we're making drinks for five people and, and they're picking up a check, obviously. And I'm telling stories. And we got three offers on the book based on this kind of a you know, you know presentation. And of course, we stuck by our guns and went with the most money. <laughs> anyway. That that's how the book actually happened. And uh, before we ever got into the final stages of the book, John's mom died. He went back to Boston. And when he came back, he went into show business. <laughs> and you may have read some of John's books, you know, or uh-huh. seen him on, on TV. And But anyway, uh, I, I credit John with this book even happening. And my, my, my title for the book was going to be Tall Tales and Cocktails, My Life Behind Bars. I thought it was so clever, you know, and I, I was working with the PR lady on a bourbon brand at the time, a wonderful woman, smart as a whip. Her daddy was the producer of the I Love Lucy show. Her name was Abby Schiller. And she said, I hear you writing a book. What are you going to call it? I said, Tall Tales, Cocktails, My Life Behind Bars. And she goes, no. She said, what do you mean no? She said, it's a terrible title. She said, it's funny, and it gives me license to tell tall tales and not, you know, you know, have fun with lore and not worry about the facts. You know, she said, no, terrible. And I said, well, what would you call it? Craft of the Cocktail. Oh, man, that's so booky and boring. Are you kidding me, really? The Craft of the Cocktail, that's what you'd call it? And she said, yeah, that's what I'd call it. Well, let me tell you, Paul, what happened? This was 2001, 2000, I guess, just after I signed a contract. Guess what happened? Of course, the, co- the Craft Cocktail happened. I mean, you know, in a very large way in the new millennium. And if I had called it Tall Tales, Cocktails, My Life Behind Bars, I might have had one or two hardcover printings, maybe. I'm doing a 17th hardcover printing with Craft of the Cocktail. And the reason I didn't want to do this book, and I didn't, by the way, the publisher bugged me for two and a half, three years to do this book because I was making money, Paul. You know, and they, the money they were offering me was pretty, pretty light, you know, and I thought I can make this in two years on my royalties. Why would I want to work so hard? And because it's got to be something special. And I also was intimidated. I was intimidated by how much astonishing work was being done by young bartenders. And did I have anything to offer these guys, you know, that they hadn't already discovered? Well, the author was sweetened. And I started thinking about what I could offer them. And I thought to myself, well, I'm a storyteller. I'm a longtime bartender. I understand a lot about balance. I, I, I make cocktails with a high degree of deliciousness and have done for many, many years you know, I still have stuff to share. And I also would like to, I would also like to showcase these guys who are friends of mine, you know, and I'd like to tell the story of what really happened and where this craft cocktail movement came from and, and, the, and the part that Joe played and Beard played and all these chefs and everybody played in this. And I did tell that in the author's introduction. There is no introduction except my introduction. And I wanted the opportunity to, to tell my 9-11 story because the book came out right as 9-11 and it was it was too late. The book was in the can when 9-11 happened. It came out in 2002, but it was off to the printer already. And I couldn't even, I couldn't even allude to it, you know, and I thought, oh my God, this is going to be terrible. What an awful thing. This book comes out, you know, and I I can't even mention what happened to the industry because we were dead in the water in hospitality in New York City until 2003, you know, just dead in the water. But what a terrible time for the book to come out just from a business point of view. And none of that stuff happened because in 2003, everybody in New York said, that's it. That is it. We're not going to change our lives for these bunch of terrorists. We are going to, and they came back gangbusters in 2003. Tremendous amount of, just like happened Katrina after a few months, you know, people from all over the country sent their parties to New Orleans. You know, everybody tried to revive this wonderful place. And just like I think will happen, 
now, and we'll talk about that later, but I believe it's going to happen now again. One of the things, looking at this new edition of the book that's coming out this fall, as you say in your author's introduction, you talk about 9-11 and the significance of that, not only for our country and for the world, but the significance of that date for the bar world and the hospitality industry, which it devastated at the time. Today, you know, when we look back 19 years later, uh, we have the perspective of being able to kind of reflect on what's happened since then, both in the larger world and in the cocktail world. How have you seen the drinks world shift in these past couple of decades? You know, when the book came out in 2002, like you said, things picked up again in 2003. And now here we are in autumn of 2020. What was the magnitude of that change in just that period of time? It was amazing. Uh, it, I, I had 34 bartenders the first day I, I took a tour around the Rainbow Room with them in 1987 before we opened. And we walked through this hotel kitchen that we had and saw this massive amount of, of, of staff including a lot of people from the Culinary Institute of America who were doing their stage. And not a single one of these 34 bartenders even had a paring knife with them, no tools whatsoever. And I said, I want you to look at the tools that all these young bar guys from the Culinary Institute of America, and look around the kitchen at, at these skilled, massively skilled people. You know? And granted, these guys are peeling potatoes over here, but they got their whole roll out, roll out there. They're proud of those tools and they learned how to, and they spent a lot of money on those tools and they learned how to, how to, how to use them over two years at the Culinary Institute. And, 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 and what do we have? We have, and we're going to learn how to use tools here too. So get used to that. Number one, you know, you're going to have tools, get yourself a good paring knife. And if you start collecting your own tools, you'll be much better off, you know, than relying on stuff that disappears from the bar. And that I would, I told them from day one, I wanted them to feel like the chef of their bar. You know, little did I know that in 2003, a bar would open on 56th Street and, and the bar chef was at the top of the cocktail menu. <laughs> they would literally call it. <laughs> <laughs> at the Rainbow because I found it in 19th century books. The word wasn't even in the dictionary for crying out loud in, the, in those days, you know. And I got a lot of flack from bartenders about it, but it did exactly what I wanted it to. It brought attention to what we were doing, you know. And it was different. So in the new millennium, cocktail became so incredibly culinary you know we, we we grabbed techniques and ingredients and it there was no stopping it i mean it just it happened i think in london first to tell you the truth because i worked in london in this era i had gone to london in 1997 working for absolute and there was a guy named john beach who had a, peters and beach was his original company they were promotional guys but when Absolute hired him, he started another company called Ideal Marketing to do one thing and one thing only, sell Absolute Vodka in the UK. He brought me in because of the Cosmopolitan. I had made a big splash about the Cosmopolitan at the Rainbow Room, and everybody thought I invented it. But um, they brought me over there to the Atlantic Bar and Grill, where Dick's Bar was, the famous Dick Bradshaw, the godfather of the London community. And I was the judge in a contest along with Michael Jackson, the beer hunter, and Peter Debrelli of the of the famous Savoy, and Salvatore Calabresi of the Lanesboro. But, you know, this is like the top guys in the industry. And we're judging. And there's 200 young bartenders sitting all around the huge bar in the Atlantic Bar and Grill. And they wanted me to do a little seminar. And so we lined up my helpers and I, 200 cosmopolitans. I went along, bam, 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 flaming orange peels over all 200 of these. <laughs> you know, and... John Beach brought me back to London, and then the people from Absolute brought me to Puerto Rico, and they brought me to Finland, they brought me to Sweden, they wanted me to start every one of my seminars with the Cosmopolitan, they wanted to show these bartenders how to use this vodka in drinks. Well, Ocean Spray hired me to, to, to uh, for the introduction of Ocean Spray Cranberry Juice to Europe, the UK specifically, London, you know. I got tons of work out of this. It was really lovely because I had lost my jobs, both of my jobs by this time. You know, the win windows was gone, you know. And uh, I was working at Windows the night before, on September 10th. I, I I was back because when when my partnership fell apart at Blackbird, the little pop up, you know, that I called it, with David and Neil, they wanted me to finish out my contract at Windows on the World. So I had an office up there, and I was doing the Spirits in the Skybox, something I had started with Andrea Immer years before when they first reopened Windows. And what it was, was interactive teaching, cocktail teaching with all, first club members got first shot at it, but then the general public, we had the, we, we had the Windows of the World Club down there, just like we had the Rockefeller Club up in the Rockefeller Center. And um, 
these folks would make cocktails along with us. We taste the spirits that were in those cocktails in a blind and in a tasting of different versions of that spirit. And tequila was the spirit of the night before, September 10th. And we got a little tipsy. So I invited some friends of mine who had taken the class down to the bar uh, to have drinks. And we were drinking champagne because we thought we had enough tequila and we needed food. So we ate dinner and we drank our Veuve Clicquot Windows of the World Cuvée. And I had had a little bit of a disagreement with some of the management about the whole Aurora thing. So I was, I was freely ordering <laughs> and signing. You know, we had about 11 bottles of Veuve Clicquot that night and, and stayed until closing. And I, when Kevin Zraeli, when I told him the story, when he and I started doing fundraisers to raise money for families of people in, in, the, in the two towers, he said, this 11 bottles that the terrorists didn't get, thank you very much. So the, the, the book was what was my cr- crutch through this time of unemployment. I mean, I was, I was without any work. And the book, suddenly, if you've written the book, you're an expert, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and people will hire you to talk about what's in the book. And so that, that's basically what I did. And, and I got hired by Jonathan Downey of the Match Bar Group in London in 2003. He had come over here on one of my cocktail safaris, which was a side business I started to make money. I was taking people on walking tours of Greenwich Village, Soho, Lower East Side, of, of the very few new kind of crafty bars that were doing interesting things, you know, and there weren't that many of them in 1997, 8, 9, 2000. I'd been doing a business for about three years in 2001. I stopped doing it around 2003. But uh, John, uh, I was I was commissioned to do one by New York Magazine, uh, and Downey asked if he could come. He was writing for Esquire at the time, along with his bar group, the Match Bar Group. Uh, and I cleared it with New York Magazine. They didn't care because it was Esquire UK. And... Um, we did our tour, and then I said, I want to take you to one more place. And we went to Eldritch State, and this was pretty early on in the in the life of Milk and Honey. You know, they were only a few months old at the time, and Sasha was alone behind the bar in those days. He had a bar back. So we went in, like, late, like, maybe two. Sasha made us everything that we wanted, you know. Um, we asked for lots of different things, and then we left. Um, and when we stepped out onto the street, John Downey turned to me and he said, you know, make to make a cracking club in London. One year later, Poland Street Milk and Honey opened and took over a whole building on Poland Street in Soho, five stories, and became a private club. Uh, and I think it's probably just closing now with COVID. So working in London and seeing what they were doing, I mean, that's the first time I saw somebody, you know, muddling basil leaves and strawberries together and all this weird stuff, you know. And, and John was kind of fed up with all that stuff. He really wanted me to teach the classics over there. Nobody knew what a stinger was or a Presbyterian or, you know, blah, blah, how to make a proper martini, how to make a proper Manhattan and, and the Ramos and all the other stuff. He wanted the classics along at his bars. He wanted his bartenders to know all the classics. And that's why I worked for him from 2003 to 2008. And it was good work to have. Let me tell you, I didn't live there, but I came in like three times a month uh, to do trainings and, uh, and then two times a month. And then in 2008, when the depression, the Great Depression, I mean, the Great Recession, they call it, hit, that was that was the end of that. That was the end of all consulting gigs <laughs> for a while. Uh, but, it, but it was what carried me over and it was what made me see what was going on. And Ben Poonhole, one of those young bartenders, came over and went to work for Amy Sacco at her big, not the little bungalow place that she opened, but her big property called Lot 60, or not Lot, uh, something 62, and they had 62 martinis, and it collapsed under its own weight because nobody knew how to do that stuff. You know, there were all those weird herbs, and, and they couldn't keep the products in stock, and none of the bartenders could figure out how to make these these drinks in, on a massive scale because it was a big property, you know. But it was, it was the first time... And a thing was attempted, you know, uh, down there in Soho, right across from the Bungalow 8, Amy Sacco's other place. Um, you know, what, what, what was happening in London, going back to 1994, when Oliver Payton opened Atlantic's Bar and Grill and, and Dick's Bar, really started something. Uh, to me, I, I, I go back that far. And then, and then the Breakfast Company, and then John Downey with the Match Bar Group, and then the Lab Bar opened. These guys were really way ahead of New York in terms of this kind of interesting stuff, you know, really getting into the cocktails deep, you know, with the ex- exception of a few other bars in the Rainbow Room, there wasn't a lot happening like that uh, on this side of the Atlantic, you know, in the 90s. And, uh, and it was quite exciting to be in London in that era. 
And in these decades that we're talking about, we've seen a number of different bartenders come out with, with their own books over time. You know, you had the, the Death & Co. book uh, came out, a wonderful um, exploration in Cocktail Codex. We've seen the Dead Rabbit guys, uh, you know, come out with their book. Um, you know, a number of different bartenders throughout the spectrum. Julie Reiner's has done a book. Ivy Mix now has a recent book out. As you looked at everything going along and looked at your work from 2002, what prompted you to come back to it now uh, at this point and say, okay, this is what I've seen coming along and that I can contribute to this edition to kind of bring it up to, to the modern era and, and make it, you know, make it worthwhile, make it valuable. Well, after being intimidated by all those <laughs> things that were happening, um, I, I did decide that I think, you know, the, the stories that I wanted to tell in the beginning of the book and the prose part of the book, but also I wanted to highlight some of the more extraordinary, what I consider to be modern classics that had come down the line and gather them together in one book that were in books like the ones you mentioned. Um, I didn't try to get into a, a lot of the very fancy technique and molecular mixology, you know, that our friend Dave Arnold did a great job of that in his book. And I, I wanted also to correct errors that I had made in my original book. I wanted to take some of those older cocktails and do variations on them. Like things like uh, the Greyhound. I, I did uh, 50 shades of Greyhound. I, I took older classic drinks and I, and I made them new again, you know, I did it with the grasshopper. I did it with, and, and, and a lot of times it was just taking something like a spirit that did not exist. When you know that when I wrote uh, 2001, th there are literally in excess of thousands and th hundreds of thousands of more spirits on the market. I would say at least a hundred thousand more spirits on the market. Maybe not that many. Maybe fifty thousand. I don't know. I did not brand my recipes in 2002, in 2001, except for things like Quattro chartreuse, you know, a few things like that that were just irreplaceable. But when I did this book, there were so many, I had come across so many incredible new brands and, and so much exciting things on the on the upper end in the in the premium and ultra premium and super premium, whatever you want to call those categories they made up. I wanted to zero in on, in the grasshopper on exactly which cacao I wanted, you know, I wanted to zero in. I used the one from San Francisco from those wonderful characters who created those uh, great spirits, oh, and they're the ones who uh, who, who recreated, um, you know, the, the fellows I'm talking about. Tempest Fugit. Tempest Fugit. They, they've done wonderful work. And so I, I wanted to find spirits and pinpoint them in the recipes so we could pinpoint the flavors and get them exactly the way they should be in that drink, you know. And I didn't have the opportunity. Look at the bitters that are on the market now. I had four, you know, really. I had Peychaud's. I had whatever brothers had but they were they were not particularly interested in, certainly in the 90s they weren't in marketing their product uh, joe was still a little kid in the mid 90s i mean you know and he, was, he wasn't even part of the company yet and he and his sister ended up running and they went wild with flavors and so many and the bitter truth people, folks and so many things came into the market that that could bring flavors to the drink that were not possible before. So I wanted to make those drinks in, in, in a way that I didn't have the opportunity to make them when I first did the book, you know, so a lot of, everything's branded in this book. And earlier you had demonstrated the martini cocktail 1888 for us from the original version of the book for the new version. You have something of your own that fits into the same vein and, and exactly what you're talking about. The smoky martini number two. So let's do this one. Yes. So the smoky martini number two, you know, uh, there, there's no, there is no, David Wonders hasn't found our, our historical oracle, haven't, hasn't found any allusion to it anywhere in print, but there, FDR rode to the White House on the repeal ticket and he was a legendary martini drinker. And there's that wonderful photo op of him with a cigarette in one hand and a martini in the other, which will never happen again with the president of the United States. He was, he, he was legendary uh, for being one of the worst martini makers ever, to tell you the truth. And a lot of people would find out a reason not to be invited, not to go to the White House when they were invited. And that meant they must have been really bad because everybody wants to go to the White House, you know. <laughs> Even Stalin complained about his martinis. But... Uh, <laughs> He did make martinis, and there was some lore that he had something to do with splashing a little scotch into a martini one time and calling it the smoky. But I, in the 70s, at Charlio's, made smoky martinis because people were drinking them in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Uh, they were dashing martinis, gin martinis with scotch, you know. Uh, and in those, in those days, it would have been blended because there was only two malts on the market in that era in the 70s when I was tending bar. So I, I thought I would do a mishmash. And if this all came out of a day I spent in 
William Grant making martinis was something called Orbium, which was a new bottling of Hendrix that I absolutely fell in love with because it had a bitter finish. And I thought, oh my God, finally I can make martinis with Hendrix because I never used Hendrix original form martinis. I used it in lots of cocktails because it had such a wonderful, unusual flavor profile, but not a martini flavor profile in my opinion. I wanted that bitter, strong, you know, dry. And, and that's what they had with this new product. It had quinine, it had wormwood, it had lotus blossom, which was a little less uh, forward than the rose uh, floral aroma of the original, but it was dry and bitter in the finish. And I don't mean bitter in a bad way, I mean in a very good way. And of the 12 martinis we made, there's not a one that we didn't like that day that I sat with Charlotte Boissy and Eric Anderson making martinis. And this was one of the ones that I came up with. And I wanted, and you know, about every two generations, the martini changes dramatically. I and mean, we went from a fitty-fitty to right after Prohibition to three to one, and then eight to one, and then a whisper. And, and for, for the most of the 20th century, you know, vermouth, was, toward the end of it, vermouth was even you know, verboten because nobody knew how to store it and use it. But uh, it got back in in the, in, in the craft movement. But the drama of the change in this drink from every two generations is dramatic, you know. Now we're back to 50-50, <laughs> you know, in a lot of ways. And a lot of people love the 50-50 because it's so much more drinkable and you can have three. But what I've got in here, it's not going to be quite 50-50, but it's going to be close. And I'm going to be using the Orbium. Uh, I'm going to be using a vermouth, which I, and by the way, I'm mashing together the smoky martini with the Vesper. So I'm adding vodka. And the vodka and the gin are almost equal parts, not quite. Uh, they're actually, um, it's two parts of uh, Orbium, one part of Reikia, which is the vodka I used that day. And uh, one part of the vermouth I discovered when Martini decided for the first time in decades to come up with a couple of new bottlings, Reserva Special Ambrato and Rubino. I fell absolutely in love with Ambrato and started using it. And it's a blanc style, so it's going to bring a little sweetness to the drink. So, I mean, I'm actually moving back towards 1888 with this drink in a way. Uh, because the Ambrato is a little in the sweet. So it's the only thing that has sweetness, I will say, you know. But let's do the two parts of the uh, of the Orbium gin here. I am going to measure. You know, I didn't measure all those years at the Rainbow Room. Uh, I can tell you how we got our sours right in a minute when I finished making this drink. But we did eventually get them right, <laughs> you know, um, by being by building them in a specific way. That's, that, that was ended up being the secret to that. And... I am going to put in this, because I can, a dash of my bitters. <laughs> going back to the tradition of 1888, I, I, I created this as kind of a tiki bitters, my, my Dale de Gros pimento bitters, because I loved pimento dram by Ray and Nephew, and they took it off the market, you know, because I was one of two people buying it. <laughs> when I complained about it, they said, yeah, well, you know, you're using, using the stuff in dashes, and there's one other guy in San Francisco using it, and you're the only two ones I got, so forget about it, you know. Um, straight this up really good. And I'm going to use the V-shaped martini glass in, in because in the, 50, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when we were making those smoky martinis, that was a glass of choice, you know. By the way, when we opened the Rainbow Room, Joe said to me he wanted, along for, with his drinks for with tradition, he wanted, uh, and by the way, the, the uh, smoky part of this, the monkey shoulder is going in now because I wanted to float it on top and I'm just going to pour it, free pour it. I'm using the uh, uh, the blended malt called Monkey Shoulder because it it's not quite as smoky as some of the other malts, and I, I wanted that feeling. Uh, excuse me while I have a little sip, and I wanted that aroma. Lovely, but uh, Joe wanted glasses with tradition, so he sent me to a place called Minner's Designs. Minner's Designs was an old china glass and silver house going back to the turn of the 19th to the 20th century. It supplied all the big hotels, and they survived Prohibition. And I said, "Do you have an old?" catalog from the 30s 20s i said yes we do but we must warn you uh those molds don't exist anymore anything you choose from those catalogs we're going to have to build molds and it's going to be quite expensive so you better be looking at ordering a lot of them i said well actually it's going to be for the rainbow don't worry <laughs> so i went through and they had many many more varieties of glass than we have to, than we had at that time in 1987 certainly in the beer wine and even cocktail 
category because in 1987, if you went to the Libby's catalog, there were like four choices for the martini glass. That was all about size, <laughs> you know. So I went there and found this. I said, what I really, really want is I, I don't want the V glass because it, it really didn't make it into use in the bar until post-World War II. I want that, that Nicanora glass, the one that was in the Thin Man. Do you remember the one I'm talking about? A small bowl on a stem. <clears throat> and I said, well, yeah, I think we might have something. And I found it, the little martini. That's it. That's the glass. At the time we're talking, of course, bars and restaurants are in a really tough position. Uh, after months of closures and restrictions intended to stop the spread of coronavirus, when we look at the situation right now, what's the path forward for bartenders and bar owners and for their guests who are trying to keep the hospitality industry alive and keep it with that sense of independence and that sense of style? Well, let, let me get, begin by by waxing a little philosophical first and saying that, you know, since the caveman, since we f figured out that you could do more with grain than make bread, we have celebrated and gathered around alcoholic beverages. So this thing has suffered so much of mankind's calamities over the millennia. I really, really honestly am tremendously optimistic that it will indeed survive this, this celebrating in groups with alcoholic beverages in bars, with bar stools, in just the way we've been doing it for, for decades and years and, and a millennium. I mean, if you, David Wondrich likes to point out that when they when they dug out that seacoast village outside of Rome, they if you take the tour, you'll find a bar and, and three big holes back there where the amphora were with the, with the spiced wines. And there was a bartender back there, and I'm sure there were some centurions hanging out there shooting the shit with him. And, and so this is nothing new, and it's not going to go away. There's going to be a vaccine. And the sad part is that we're going to lose lots of our really favorite places, you know, that, that, that these are places that were opened by really smart, really clever, young, talented people. And those smart, clever, young, talented people are going to come back. They're going to find a way to do this again. They're going to find investors. It's going to happen. Maybe real estate will even look a little rosier on the other half because people might be a little bit more, you know, friendly to the idea of a bar in their apartment or in their new building or we're in their neighborhood, you know, to bring people back to the street level for, for some life, you know? So, so I, I just did a forward for said Moses book called pouring with heart said uh, has tried throughout to keep as many people. He got the PPP loan and kept all of his management. Most of whom were ex bartenders because he, he moved everybody up with the exception of a couple investor types, the rest of his management staff was all bartenders and even barbacks that moved up in his within his his group. And he had 20 bars when this thing hit and he was on he was working on four more. And his his, his mission was to have 2030 employees by the year 2030 and to have 100 bars. That's his mission in life, to create careers for 2030. Because he hung around with Charles Bukowski in these places and all around LA, these dive bars, and he fell in love with this whole thing, the people, you know, that, that were in these bars and the people behind these bars. And he, and he, 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 he turned one of Bukowski's favorite places into a, an extraordinary dive bar today and he did so many restorations uh, in historic buildings and I, I believe people like him are going to back these bars and it, it's not going to go away there's so many people who have stepped up I listened to your wonderful podcast and what these companies have done is extraordinary you know millions and millions of dollars into the community and community is the key word here isn't it and, and, and this is what changed in the bar business in the new millennium that simply did not exist. There were no bar teams, Paul. There was no community in this in this sector. We were bartenders, we each had our own register, and we were competing. We weren't, you know, we were friends, of course. You know, the, the management was talking to you. If you if you did a Saturday night, 2,500 bucks on your register, and that guy did 3,000 or 4,000, you know, he wanted to know why, you know, what's going on with you. But, but now the, the community is extraordinary. It's amazing to me what's happened in this industry, and that's another, you know, reason why I'm I'm, I'm loving this book is because I'm I was with these guys when I was writing it, calling them up for their recipes, talking about it, and I asked them all to write a paragraph for me, you know. So there's a lot of writing from some of these young guys also in the book next to the recipes. Thank you so much for spending so much time with us and, and filling us in on this and bringing us up to speed with the new edition of your book. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm delighted to have had the opportunity and I was delighted to be able to write it and have the opportunity to write it, to tell you the truth. And I, 
And I do believe uh, uh, what I said is true, that all you guys, you know, this is not going, this business is not going anywhere and I hope you'll persevere. That's it for this episode. Check our website in this episode's notes for details on those cocktail recipes and for information on the revised and updated edition of The Craft of the Cocktail. You can find us online at imbibemagazine.com and keep up with us on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and Twitter. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to hear future episodes, and if you're not already a subscriber to the print and or digital issues of Imbibe, then we can help you with that. Just follow the link in the episode notes and become a subscriber today. This is Paul Clark from Imbibe Magazine. I'll be back with you again in a couple of weeks. Take care.